to that side. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today's going to be a really fun one. Um, we finally came up with a podcast name. I don't know if you noticed, but I hadn't said any specific name in previous episodes. Yesterday, one of our um, team members here, Joe, came up with this awesome name idea. I'll be damned. I'll be damned podcast. So here we are recording I'll be damned. Um, a podcast about beavers hosted by the Metal Beaver Project in Twisp, Washington in the Metal Valley. My name is Josiah Shaver. I'm your host once again. And today we are sitting down with Alexa Whipple, who is the director of the Metal Beaver Project. I'm going to give a short bio and then we'll get right into it. So Alexa is an ecologist and a farmer and she works for sustainability in all practices and looking for effective solutions to challenging conditions. She has called the Metal Valley home for the last 18 years, but has worked across the Western US studying songbirds, carnivores, plant communities, agricultural impacts on habitat and wildlife, and wildfire impacts on riparian ecosystems. Her family has also commercially raised and sold annual vegetables and perennial fruits, as well as provided well water services to the Metal Valley. Recently, Alexa completed her master's in restoration ecology at Eastern Washington University, where she focused on beaver ecology and beaver-mediated restoration of wildfire impacts in the Metal River watershed. So we're super excited to sit down with Alexa. She's going to tell us a lot about the project and what we do here. My first question for you, Alexa, is what is the story of how you got to the Metal Beaver Project and became the director? One word, wildfire. Uh, I knew about the Beaver Project a long time. Kent Woodruff is a friend and I had volunteered with my daughter when she was four or five helping take care of beavers that were being relocated um, and their short stay at the Winthrop Fish Hatchery from their place of conflict to their new home out on public lands and so I knew what they did generally but after the 2014 Carlton Complex wildfires I was really concerned with how our streams would recover after not just the wildfire damage but the debris flows that followed wildfire from two significant storms um, that only happened a couple weeks after the burns uh, first happened and then they scoured all the water from those precipitation events scoured a lot of our streams in the burned area down to bedrock I mean, these are evolutionary scale events or geologic scale events and I just started asking around to folks um, in the biology world how these streams would recover because that wasn't really a an area of knowledge of mine I was I have a wildlife biology background, but more like specific species mm. and not so much watershed habitats or stream geomorphology um, and how all those streams function and recover and evolve uh, after disturbance. So I wasn't getting great answers from people about how this would recover, just time. Time was the answer and I was like, we don't have a lot of time <laughs> considering climate mm. challenges, but also development challenges. and. I, I run a lot, so one of the areas I run was in the 2014 Carlton Complex burn boundary, and it was actually close to where one of the fires started, and it burned completely all the way through the riparian area. And running through there after the fire, within a short year, 
the Meadow Beaver Project had put beavers back into that stream. And I saw it starting to recover and surface water standing because of beaver dams along a spring right adjacent to a severely incised part of that creek. And it just was like an aha moment of like, why not a native species that's also a keystone species to help recover these incredibly and severely degraded streams after wildfire. So I just started investigating on that front. It, it took a long time. It's, you know, it's 2021. So it's been seven years and a lot has changed in my life that has directed me absolutely confidently towards the answer that beavers are one of the answers to de repairing degraded streams across the West, across North America, across Europe, where beavers ha have been native, but nearly extirpated and are struggling to make a comeback, com mostly because of land conversion by humans and humans not willing to compromise all the time with allowing beavers to share space with them. So yeah, there's a lot to the Methow Beaver Project. Wildfire is certainly an aspect, you know, stream restoration after wildfire, but there's a lot of stream restoration that needs to happen when there's no wildfire involved um, from legacy degradation, roads, timber harvest, mining, uh, livestock impact, damming, uh, you know, human damming for power, for water control, irrigation, abstraction. So anyways, that's a long story uh, for why I got involved with the Meadow Beaver Project, but wildfire started it and now it's everything. Hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about like the, how that relates to the, the two wildfires that we still have burning, mostly contained just a few miles from here? Yeah, they're, you know, it's coming to light when I was looking at stream restoration post wildfire over the last five years, I've met so many people in the beaver beaver mediated restoration world that are studying different aspects of beavers impacts on the landscape. And um, Dr. Emily Fairfax, who you've been in touch with, she really has spearheaded uh, beaver mediated resilience or resistance to wildfire. So one of the things that that relates to with our current wildfires burning is that we've actually relocated beavers to so many different uh, sub basins or tributaries of the Metau over the last 12, 13 years that we do have at least formerly established beaver complexes in the burned areas for this year and pretty much anywhere it might burn in the valley we have beaver complexes there. They may not be currently active, but that's one of the cool things about having beavers up higher in the watershed where stream flow isn't as powerful. Even when beavers leave or they are predated upon by wolves or bears or cougars, which we're so happy to have all of those in our system, uh, ecosystem, that their dams persist. Hmm. Sometimes five or plus up to 10 years if it's a low flow, high headwater stream environment. So that's pretty exciting. Like you don't just have to have a beaver complex established. And beaver complexes are cyclical anyways. Beavers tend to eat themselves out of house and home and then move back into an area 10, 15 years after it's recovered. If given the opportunity to be flexible with moving up and down a stream system. So beavers are, are really flexible. <laughs> they don't always do exactly what we want 
but they uh, adapt very well if we give them room to do that. So yeah, so we are gonna go back in after these fires are safe, are done burning, safe enough to re-enter those systems, uh, at least the land managers deem it safe enough. And we will go in and investigate how well some of these beaver complexes responded to fire, whether they're supporting wildlife as a refugia during and after fire, whether they're able to help support a reestablishment of wildlife populations on the burned landscape afterwards. So it's going to be really educational and we'll work with Dr. Emily Fairfax on looking at some of that um, aerial imagery before and after fire for these areas because she's very prepared to do that and works with a lot of students like yourself, Josiah, who are committed to making a difference with climate change and climate impacts and how do we adapt to them so it's really yeah. exciting it is exciting uh you know let's talk about that because well can you talk about the role that the mental beaver project has played in pioneering some of these things and working with beavers um, for other communities other states in the u.s so the Meadow Beaver Project officially formed in 2008 as a collaborative program of the U.S. Forest Service, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the Metal Conservancy. Metal Conservancy is a land trust. It didn't really fit under their uh, organizational umbrella that well, but there were some really dedicated folks who wanted to see it happen and so helped make it so, mostly in the administrative part of things. It quickly outgrew that organization and now is under Methow Salmon Recovery Foundation and still a collaborative with the Forest Service and Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. So at that point, I mean, beaver reintroduction relocation has been happening since they were nearly extirpated back in the 18, mid 1800s. There were some really forward thinking and uh, thoughtful naturalists, biologists who recognized beaver's impact on the landscape and watersheds and their absence recognized the de degradation that was happening in streams with beavers absence after widespread fur trapping and removal um, for mostly economic reasons, some political reasons. Read Ben Goldfarb's book, Eager, <laughs> uh, and a few other really good ones. But relocation isn't new, it is how we think a lot of the beavers came back to the Medhow and the Okanagan and other areas across the arid west is they were actually relocated from Canadian stocks of beaver and sometimes east coast stocks where people already realized beavers were going to be an important part of the landscape in the future and we're trying to protect them. There are some really early pioneers across beaver history but this was yet another iteration and bringing it kind of to the next level in the early 2000s of how, how do we, again, address the lack of beavers on the landscape and the value of partnering with them for water storage in particular in the face of climate change, a warming climate in particular where communities dependent on snowpack for their water and water is in short supply in the arid and semi-arid west, how do we replace that water on the landscape? We can't put more snow on the landscape and that's generally what we count on in the Metau. Uh, so beavers are just a natural answer to that. We have room for more beavers. We could make a lot more room for beavers if we are willing to compromise and limit our development of the habitat that beavers really need in order to 
basically provide the benefits we're really looking for. Yeah. So I, I don't like to look at beavers as a tool. I like to and want everyone to consider them a partner, mm. a potential partner, because they can't, we can't just apply them to some, some stream and apply them to a wetland. We have to think about what they need for there to be a long-term self-sustaining relationship between us and them. So we have to be a good partner too. I mean, they're not using us as a tool. <laughs> we can't think of them as a tool. We need to think of them as a partner. So that's, um, I think one of the things the Meadow Beaver Project has really helped push is that we need to work with natural processes. in order to sustain our own species, let alone all of the species we depend on, not just for food and for uh, building materials, and I mean salmon specifically for food and forests for building materials. We need to think of all the species, all the parts, the web of life that are required to basically keep this planet rolling in a way that we find sustainable and joyful and worth living in mm. so i mean we're heading quickly down a path that isn't necessarily looking positive in that direction so the meadow beaver project has made it a mission to reach out to anyone interested in beaver relocation help train them up on the the things we've developed at least which is husbandry practices trapping is trapping trapping's been done the same way for centuries we don't do it much different than anyone else but we live trap, I mean, that's right. the difference. I mean, people yeah. have been live trapping for a long time. There's kill trapping, conibear traps, body gripping traps. Those are even illegal in Washington state and several other Western states. Live trapping, there's an art to it for sure, but it's actually best done by generations of trappers. You know, mm. people who have grown up trapping, they're really sharp with that. And we like to partner with trappers who are willing to live trap and then give us the beaver. <laughs> and ideally, we have that built into our funding to be able to pay people to, tra to live trap beavers. Uh, we're in a, try to circle back to your original question. Some of the things we've developed is really key to relocation of, an in of more than one beaver, which is the sexing of beavers. Beavers do not have external genitalia, so it makes it really difficult to tell girl from boy. Um, so one of the ways we do that, and it was developed with a wonderful professor at Central Washington University that's now used not only nationally, but internationally as a technique to pair beavers in order to release them as a pair to ideally set up shop in a new stream and uh, make more beavers, ideally. That is done now by sexing them through their scent glands. And that is their anal gland secretions. Not everybody wants to talk about <laughs> all the deeper yeah. biology of all of this, but there are differences in the sense between males and females. Males smelling, you know, what some people would describe more like motor oil, and yeah. females smelling more like uh, ripe cheese, a rich ripe cheese. It's still really difficult to tell, but once you have worked with a lot of beavers, it's 100% accurate if you get that repetitive work with beavers. That said, we've moved over 400 beavers in wow. 12 plus years into, uh, from places of conflict with private landowners to places of usually public land uh, streams where they won't be in conflict with people as much. 
but we're getting away from that. We're actually not having as many calls from landowners for one. We feel like our beaver populations can't really support consistent trapping and relocation <laughs> from private lands, which are primarily on our main stem rivers. That's leading us to believe that we are kind of creating a sink population on the upper landscape, public lands, where we've restored beavers over the last 12 years, meaning they're not faring as well being relocated from the main stem rivers because habitat is poor. That's one of our um, hypotheses. There are also, we also have a very predator rich landscape and we're moving them far from other beavers. So mm. even if we move them as a pair or a family, they don't necessarily stay where we put them for reasons we still don't fully understand. But if one of the mate dies, the other typically goes looking for a new mate. And that's often a long journey back to where they might find more beavers. So we're starting to readjust, you know, even though the Meadow Beaver Project was a pioneer in trapping and relocating and um, our housing that we house beavers that we have trapped for relocation at the Winthrop National Fish Hatchery in old fish runs that, that are no longer useful for raising fish, rearing fish. And it's been an incredible partnership to have that water supply, the large and deep runs to hold beavers safely that they can't escape from, um, to provide shade and a place to work them up and, and to have public outreach and opportunity for the public to see beavers where most of us don't see beavers very often on our landscape, even though they used to be ubiquitous. So it's been an awesome partnership there. We try to help other groups connect with hatcheries in their area to use that simplest, easiest yeah. housing opportunity mm. first. Not every hatchery has been open to it, but a lot have been. Uh, the tribes in Washington have been most open to it. So there's a lot of things we've been pioneers about, but most of it is, is subject to change, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're evolving as an organization too, where we're realizing relocation, which is what we're known for, may not be the only answer. It's, it's gonna be part of the answer and always a tool in our basket. But now we're really focusing on coexistence. How do we help landowners, private landowners, and public landowners, land managers, live with the beavers they have under the limited complexity of systems that we currently have on a human dominated landscape. The other one is restoring streams to help beavers establish and closer into a denser population of beavers rather than way up in the headwater streams of your um, main stem rivers. So we're, we're starting to try to get that word out to all of our partner relocators, folks that we've helped train up. Mm. We're consistently learning from their experiences. Now we're trying to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe relocation isn't the best first approach or first response to landowner conflict. And there's a lot of people spearheading coexistence that we're learning a lot from. Mike Callahan, who you interviewed, um, Beaver Coalition in Oregon, Jacob Shockey, he's made huge strides, Skip Lyle. So we're all learning. And that's one of the coolest things about the beaver restoration community is nobody is trying to be the king or queen and top dog. We're all in this together. And that is, to me, one of the perfect examples for what we need to do on a larger scale in society is we're all in this together. Let's help each other continue to evolve and accelerate 
our responses and our adaptations to climate change. Yeah. That was a long answer. That was a good answer. <laughs> okay, how about this? Are we in a beaver revolution or beaver movement? Well, like, is there a ton of momentum going on here? What, what do you see? It's a great question, but I, I have my rose-colored beaver glasses on, you know? <laughs> Being on the inside, I feel like it's a revolution. I want it to be a revolution. I'm just not positive it is a revolution yet, but there are, there are hints. Hmm. Ben Goldfarb's book, um, Eager, The Surprising and Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, that won, he won, the Scientific Writing Award in 2018. I, I mean, that tells me, and it gives me chills just saying it, that people are paying attention to this issue. Mm. It's such a pragmatic approach to restoration, but also to adaptation to climate challenges as we learn them. You know, we don't know all the challenges we're facing until they are presenting themselves. We have an idea, but not all of them. I think there are hints that we are, and if us working with landowners currently is any indication. I would say even a lot more landowners are already aware and learning and willing to learn more about the benefits of beavers rather than just wanting them off their land and disrupting their personal priorities. We're finding a lot more people aware that water is an issue especially oh, yeah. in arid and semi-arid environments and when we talk to them about well you know beavers will actually store more water here is there any tolerance for their presence and for their water storage on your landscape we can probably remedy or at least mitigate the biggest challenges that you don't want your infrastructure flooded you don't want your road damaged from their inundation of land and most most everyone has said yes we are willing to try and experiment it's still experimental we've only been doing this you know most people have only been trying to coexist with beavers on more than a wrapping your trees with fence to keep them from cutting them down um, and so therefore it means like flow devices trying to limit surface water area but maintain a maximum surface water area so we're like 20 years into experimenting with these devices there are some really sharp folks working on this and it's working and it saves money it's a lot less maintenance than clearing culverts and uh, trapping beavers out a lot less cost and in the long term you're getting incredible biological and ecological benefits while reducing the conflict with humans so coexistence mm. is our direction and that's meadow beaver project's direction i'm hoping society's direction and another indicator of the revolution is that there is a Beaver Corps training group that spawned out of Mike Callahan's Beaver Solutions for-profit company hmm. that's called Beaver Institute. And he started Beaver Corps training to train individuals like me at the Meadow Beaver Project. And now over 40 others across North America to learn to coexist better help landowners learn to coexist better with beavers by applying these coexistence strategies and flow devices and maintaining them and there's very specific ways after 20 years of mike callahan applying these strategies little tricks that he's learned that make these devices work 
85% of the time, I think is his number on his website. You'd have to double check me on that uh, or anyone listening <laughs> to be sure on that. But they're really effective if they're done well. Hmm. If they're done poorly, it gives a terrible name to coexistence strategies. So we discourage right. people from just trying that this without some training. But I think it's the direction we're moving. Lots more people are interested. Mike Callahan's applied like 2,500 of these devices across um, the Northeast, Massachusetts in particular is where he's based, Connecticut. There's just more and more beaver groups. So I hope you're right. Like I, I hope there is a beaver revolution. I just have to remain cautiously optimistic. Nice, I like it. Can you tell us about some of the educational stuff that Mental Beaver Project does? Yeah, one of the key things we do is work with K through 12. Uh, kindergartners love beavers. And I mean, most people do. They're super cute. They're easy to be around. They're not aggressive. You know, beavers will protect themselves if threatened. Um, and most of that is hiding. You know, that's how they protect themselves is hiding. Uh, I don't encourage anyone to go pick up beavers and pet them, though many people do and have not been injured. I'm just not recommending it. Um, beavers are a wild animal. They actually don't do well in captivity in general. They're rarely in zoos. They don't generally don't survive long wow. in captivity. So yeah, outreach to the younger generations is really effective because if kids get latched onto something or introduced to an idea, it often sticks with them at a young age and they share it with their parents and their grandparents. And when they wanna go see a beaver complex and they drag their parents along, like I wanna go see the beavers, then they help parents understand that even though they've grown up potentially with a beavers are a pest or a rodent are the are a conflict waiting to happen because they interfere with adult priorities, whether that's flooding ag land, agricultural land, flooding roads, cutting your favorite trees down, that can be really frustrating and give a bad name to beavers in general. But if kids come along and say, well, do you know that they could store more water at our property? Like everybody's talking about climate change and how scary that is. So, so we try to focus on the younger generations and then our outreach has expanded to landowners. We offer free consultation on beaver challenges and often cost share at a very low cost to our landowners. Um, actual strategies to coexist with beavers and we'll relocate as long as our funding is available for free. That's something that I think is a huge outreach opportunity um, for anyone who's having conflict with beavers. We do a lot of presentations at conferences to share our, our new understandings as we develop them and as we evolve. Uh, that's a priority for our work. We host interns and students. Uh, we work with universities a ton for graduate research. We need to continually do research on beaver restoration, how to do it better and more effectively and accelerate the biological benefits. So we are constantly engaging with our local universities, University of Washington, Eastern Washington University, and Washington State University in particular are three of our major partners. We're currently hosting uh, two graduate students from WSU who are working on eDNA uh, studies around detecting beaver in water samples basically is what they're doing to try to help us understand if we can work on and understanding our beaver populations as well as 
disease transfer and invasive species transfer when we're relocating hmm. to better understand what we're doing and to plan better in the future. We have other students working on the impacts of putting structure back into streams to help beavers establish better after wildfire. Those students are measuring water quality, um, water residency times in streams, sediment aggradation, uh, vegetation responses to structures. So we're always looking for those partnerships that will help better our understanding and all practitioner and manager understanding of how beavers can benefit ecological restoration. So those are the main areas. We definitely do public events. Those haven't been very big in the last year and a half, but a beaver celebration every fall typically. Uh, we also did a really great event called Chew on This where we had local singer-songwriters come in who had most of them already written songs about beavers or wetlands or building structures in streams and how you do it through song. And we had incredibly educated folks give talks on doing that type of restoration and how everyone can be involved in it. We get the public involved, citizens, scientists involved with our work as much as we can. And that's been a hard part of the last year and a half with COVID to scale that way back. Mm. So, yeah, yeah we're, and we're open to all sorts of different opportunities like you've presented with social media, like upping our social media game. But starting this podcast, that was an idea um, I had like a year and a half ago when I first joined the Beaver Project. But with all the other responsibilities, I just couldn't find a way to fit it in, nor yeah. did I have a lot of the background. I mean, I, you'll notice I'm a bit of an older student to life. And some of these new fangled uh, tech things are are just a little daunting to me sometimes. So it's great to have someone come in who's real comfortable with it and willing to make it happen. And short order. So it's been great, Josiah, to have you spearheading this. Well, thank you. I love it. Um, really quick technical thing. Could you actually move your mic to the other side? I'm not sure if the hair is going to affect it. I guess if you throw your hair back, that works too. I, got it. I just don't know if it's going to rub, make a sound. I guess you guys will find out listening. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't catch any of that. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm sure it's fine. Um, we talked about education. We talked about events, outreach. Um, and you've mentioned the solutions uh, to some of the common problems that beavers cause. And we, you know, we call them problems. It's our infrastructure or whatever. Um, can you kind of go through the list of common problems and the solutions that we often find and help uh, private landowners, installer, whoever it is, um, such as, I guess, can we start with trees? Yeah, that is the most common complaint. Mostly because beavers in the main stem rivers, like the Metal River, is a, it's a big river, and the Okanagan River, they can't build dams there. So they are if they're living in the main stem meadow, I'm just going to use the meadow as an example. They are living in bank dens. They're, they dig into the side of the channel or side channel of a main stem river. And they live maybe in multiple bank dens. And they may even have family, but they don't necessarily build a pond, like a dam and a pond, as we think of as classic, a beaver, classic beaver pond. But in the main stem rivers, they'll be moving up and down streams. And so therefore, they are getting out of the river <laughs> wherever they feel like it really to eat mm. and so therefore cutting trees down and most of our river frontage is private land across the west across the east coast even more so it's private land so people tend to notice when beavers show up pretty quickly 
even with no water being stored on the landscape, they notice their trees cut down. That is the simplest solution to living with beaver is wrapping trees in it. There's technique to it for sure. And depending on if you have a live in snow country, how tall your fencing needs to be. There may need to be some trimming of limbs to make fencing really uh, useful. You have to think about the maintenance of fencing in order for trees not to girdle themselves. You know, if you wrap it too tightly, trees do grow and they expand their diameter. And if your fencing is tightly wrapped to start with, a tree will become girdled from that fencing. But you can easily accommodate that by leaving a little space and maintaining it every few years and leaving enough fence to just widen the fence rather than put a whole new fence around. So there's techniques. I mean, any, anyone can do it, but a thoughtful approach will make it more successful. The next stage, and, and we offer fencing, we try to cost share or do it for free if we have the materials already with our landowners who just have a visiting beaver coming by seasonally to cut down a few trees. Happy to help protect those trees because those are good too for shade, for the river system. You know, shade is not the best cooling opportunity for rivers. That's just a sideline. Like fish do benefit from shade, but they benefit even more from structure in streams. When beavers are cutting trees down and adding more wood to streams as in, in water structure, that's even more beneficial than shade above water. So uh, it's trying to change everyone's perspective on what a healthy stream is. Depends on whose health you're talking about, <laughs> you know? If it's yeah. the ecosystem's health and aquatic organisms' health, all of those things evolved with a lot of structure in streams. Rarely was there a stream that didn't have a ton of downed wood, ton of beaver dams, you know, at least in North America and Europe, and a ton of vegetation growing off of those structures within the surface water area. We're used to really clean streams now where there's not much wood and there's not much bank vegetation and even the channels really incised or channelized. Some people call it uh, from our historic uses that it just seems really clean and not complex. And that's not good for our aquatic organisms that evolved in a very different system, which is not, which was the norm not that long ago. I mean, literally 250 years ago, 300 years ago, at least in the Pacific Northwest, this place was fully beavered, mm. or at least mostly beavered. There were, you know, Vikings coming in and <laughs> getting furs from natives long, long ago, like back to the 1400s, 1300s, probably, maybe even 1100s. But it was not a beaverless landscape until the mid 1800s, and that changed things dramatically. So, tree wrapping is really easy, and that's generally the complaints we get because we don't have a lot of beavers making complexes with dams in our main stem river. Mm -hmm. It's been changed so much that side channels and opportunity to do that is very few and far between in most of most Western rivers. But when you get off of the main stem up into smaller tributaries and there is private land, you will find beavers trying their best in some places to dam up those streams, especially in the late summer fall when water starts to really um, reduce flow. Beavers try to shore it up, getting ready for winter they build dams in order to have deep water to escape predators. 
yes, they do spread water across the landscape and therefore create more food opportunities for themselves by, I mean, most plants benefit from water. Some plants don't like to be drowned in water, you know, and they'll die. And you'll see a lot of dead trees in a new beaver complex because those trees can't handle being inundated. But then there's plenty of plants that beavers need and love for their food that love standing in water, like hmm. willows, like aspens. Wow. So those trees actually are benefited by the damming that beavers do. And then beavers are like farmers. They will come through and harvest or coppice some of these trees. Coppice meaning cut off a little above the base, which actually stimulates them to grow again. Huh. And so they'll cycle through and be like, all right, I'm going to cut these willow this year. Now I'm going to move on and let them grow back and cut these next willow over here. So any landowner that's dealing with beavers who've found a nice home on their, you know, quote, boundary own land ownership. Beavers don't recognize those boundaries, so they don't know any better. Uh, if people are struggling with the amount of surface water that has increased after beavers dam up an area, and they call us, or they get word that we might be able to help them, which we try to get out there with newspaper articles and as much uh, outreach as we can get the word out that we are, we are here and we're available to help. We will offer to do, uh, well, one, strategize. What's the best strategy here? Is this a place where beavers really are benefiting the ecosystem? If they are, then we suggest coexistence strategies. Primarily, that means either a flow device that allows you to modify their dam in a way that you reduce surface water elevation, so the height of water and therefore the area that water spreads out, uh, by basically allowing more water to flow through their dam than they necessarily would like, but in such a sneaky way that they can't figure out how the water is leaving and defeat your coexistence device or flow device. There, it's, it's very simple, but how it's done is really important to make sure they don't just defeat your device, meaning mudding it up, packing it with sticks, and just flooding everything as it was before. So there's a lot to that. I'm not going to break it all down, but it's basically a pipe going through their dam at a certain height that keeps the surface water elevation. That at a maximum that is tolerant, that the, the landowner is tolerant of. And if it will adaptively manage it, we'll keep working at it with a beaver until we get it right or until we feel like it's just not going to work with those beavers. We've not faced this is not going to work with any beavers well, yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these things are pretty effective. We're pretty excited. There's also fish passage challenges in our simplified aquatic systems, especially on main stem river side channels. A lot of levees have been built to keep water from accessing the uh, a, a major river's historic floodplain. And Methow, where we're sitting right now was floodplain of the Metau River. Yet there's an entire town of Twist. The entire town of Winthrop is built in the floodplain of the Metau River. Mm. Mazama is in the floodplain of the Metau River. Most river systems have major developments in the floodplain because that is where people find good resources, especially, you know, as the saltwater resource, the marine environment, Seattle. Uh, Portland's not a marine environment, but it, the 
Columbia River and the Willamette River. Yeah. That is where people find food, is where there's water. Right. And that's historically where civilizations have developed. The Nile, they know, every river on this beautiful earth of ours is surrounded by people on all sides of it, basically. It might be more dense in some areas than others, but we moved into those areas for a reason, for food, whether it's growing or accessing wild food. Where beavers historically have been native, when they were extirpated, especially in North America, where settlers followed the extirpation of beavers because of the fur trade, the fur trade brought gold miners and miners in general, and then livestock ranchers, and then you know on and on, more and more European descent settlers came out. And wherever they found water, they made their cities, their homes, their communities, and beavers weren't there because they'd been trapped out. So now we have all these developments in floodplain areas where rivers used to move, beavers used to live, and we don't want our cities and homes flooded, so we dike and we levee rivers, we straighten them, we want efficient water movement that doesn't threaten us. Yeah. But now doing that, having simplified our water systems and channelized them and diked them and levied them and controlled them with dams, that's now threatening our existence and everything we depend on by not letting that water move around and increase ecological complexity, which increases biodiversity and supports biodiversity and resilience to disturbance. Climate change, wildfire, flooding. Yeah, I mean, there's just, this is such a bigger story and beavers seem like a really small part, but they're not. Mm. I mean, they helped shape this landscape. It was biology, beavers, and vegetation for sure, wood structure, especially big wood structure, that was all the biology that helped push water around that naturally comes from the sky as snow or rain and works with the geological formations, mountains forming, tectonic plates moving. So we have geology, hydrology, and biology shaping this landscape. Beavers were the major biological organism actually moving water and earth around. There is no other species that does it besides humans quite like that. So it's not really understood that ecological amnesia comes in. Like people don't understand what beavers do because they haven't seen the connection right. between yeah. the historic impact of beavers before humans were even on the landscape. Long before. Beavers are more than seven million years old in their current form. And there were prehistoric beavers prior to that you know I mean that's way prehistoric so like humans have not been around that long and we don't naturally at least in this modern day understand all the connections that have led to our evolution but also our survival so I don't know I mean these we can go big we can go micro and beavers are part of it all so yeah yeah that's I mean I have had a beaver revolution. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I like it. I mean, that happened for me. I'm hoping it can happen for everyone in a place where beavers have been native. Right. You know, beavers were moved to other places by, 
you know, the fur traders who wanted a new place to put beavers that, that was convenient as they moved globally around uh, in their ships across the oceans. So like South America faces an invasive beaver issue. I'd love to go pick up those beavers and bring them back here. That'd be awesome. That's not real practical. But we don't want to say beavers are good everywhere. Not every ecosystem evolved with beavers, nor would respond well to beavers. Ours does. It, they evolved here. We want them back. Yeah. You know, you talked about landscape change, geomorphology, how the rivers change. Um, I'm from the Willamette Valley, of course, and I'm going to school at Oregon State. And there are a few researchers at Oregon State that have recently done a study on what the Willamette Valley looked like and what the river looked like, you know, before, uh, yeah, before Western people colonization happened and the river was channelized. It looked completely different. It, it was not straight at all. Um, and actually recently I got to see this picture and I had seen the models, you know, and the imagery. Um, that they have from satellites and planes, but recently I got to fly over it myself on my trip to Europe. Um, went down from from Portland to California and then flew over the Willamette Valley. And it was really cool to see. Um, and it just struck me how, you know, it's not a straight line, but the Willamette Valley is fairly straight and that's not at all what a natural river does. Um, and in, this, in these models that they had of what it probably looked at based on topography and what they know past vegetation was and beavers, it of course was, um, was a loopy line that meandered, you know, like a snake would slither, slither through the valley. Um, yeah, yeah with multiple channels braiding. Exactly. And, uh, there's so many historic recollections in you know documents of discovery different people you know there's Lewis and Clark but they were kind of late to the game really coming out to see the West in its pre-settlement its pre-western discovery uh, Douglas was another one there's there's drawings of areas that and descriptions of areas that made it sound like these were really difficult areas to move through because of beaver development and beaver complexes and that was the norm for hundreds of thousands of years if not millions of years across yeah. this landscape as geology changed and hydrology changed things beavers were changing it too so in some ways you know having a messy complex landscape makes it more difficult to navigate right as a human yeah but all of that complexity and all of that challenge provides opportunity and resilience to the myriad of species that evolved in partnership with beavers and geology and vegetation that went along with that you know that's so it's I think it's up to humans to really look at where we can and need to compromise our convenience, our comforts, mm. in order to have a thriving ecosystem. Honestly, I feel like people have gotten a, a pretty comfortable and want to maintain that comfort without having to give much back in order for this ecosystem to survive, but better yet, thrive. 
So that's that's what I work towards too with our landowners and in everyday decisions. It's like how do we let natural processes like channel migration, which is becoming a much bigger restoration consideration, where can we let rivers move and streams move as they would like to in order to build up resilient sections of streams, even if it can't be the entire one, because humans right. are on the landscape. Humans mm -hmm. aren't going to just poof, disappear, as much as COVID might make some people think it might. There's a lot of us on this planet. If we can even start by saying, where can we already allow the channel to move? Just by moving a riprap bank or an armored bank, removing that armoring and allowing it to access its floodplain where there isn't currently a, a human infrastructure risk. Then we can start looking at what some coastal communities are already doing is relocation of those entire communities as sea levels rise. That's not so hard to accept at this point that this might be what we have to do on coastal, in coastal communities. We might also need to do that in river bank communities to say, maybe this isn't this, the place for this community. Maybe it's a hundred feet up on the next terrace right and we rebuild up there and let this channel meander and migrate and support salmon and whitefish and all the so many species that we already depend on and are losing because they don't have that complexity and resilience mm -hmm. nor just habitat quantity of habitat right. let alone quality yeah. So we have, we have some big decisions to make to say like, are we going to work with nature or are we going to just keep working against it? Hmm. Uh, I actually want to jump back to trees and, and, and <laughs> talk about trees. We need them. We, well, yes, <laughs> but um, we talked about wrapping trees. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the paint you can put on trees to keep beavers away? Yeah, the sand paint is not our favorite uh, coexistence strategy for trees. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sand paint is known to be a somewhat effective deterrent for beavers on larger trees. It tends to not deter beavers on smaller diameter sapling sized trees, because literally that can be like a two or four bite <laughs> process for beavers that by the time they start to feel like, oh, I don't like this grating sandpaper, like you put sand in paint, so sand paint, and the, by the time you, they figure that out, they're done cutting the tree down. So we actually did a test in the Winthrop Hatchery where we um, house beavers between tra trapping and relocating them. And it didn't seem like what level of sand paint, I mean, too much sand in a paint and it peels off the tree as you paint it on. Too little has no effect. Just the right amount to keep it on there and have some impact. On two to three inch diameter trees, it didn't seem to matter at all to the beavers. On a little bit larger diameter tree, they'd take a few bites and give up on it um, in our tests. We have applied this in a few places, only where we have the landowner's permission to say, I'm okay losing those trees, I'd rather not. Mm -hmm. But if you wanna experiment, yeah, let's go ahead, like a big aspen stand. And we have found mixed results. So it's It's not my favorite. I don't recommend it highly unless it's in a situation like a golf course this spring that we wrapped some 
primary trees that the golf course owner did not want to see come down. It could damage greens, cause $30,000, $40,000 of damage to have a tree come down on the greens. But in other areas where there was a large grove that were being targeted by the local beavers, he was very open to trying sand paint. And so we did, and some of those trees have been cut down. So, and it's, there is the toxicity potential of latex paint out in the environment. We do recommend latex and sand, but it's not the worst toxin. There's titanium dioxide in it. That's where the toxicity comes from, not the latex itself. Hmm. Um, and that's a really low level of toxicity. It's below EPA levels. It's just another one of those considerations you want to make when you apply a coexistence strategy for ecological benefit. You don't want to make a, another problem. <laughs> ideally yeah. as we are prone to do as humans like we find a solution and oh that solution's now the problem mm. but we want to try to be thoughtful about that so i don't recommend it highly gotcha yes wrapping is much more effective for important trees okay so we've talked about a few beaver solutions for trees uh try the wrapping before the paint um another big one is culverts being plugged up culverts yeah. that are under roads of course and uh preventing the flooding that then happens when there's a culvert uh, that's dammed up by a beaver. Um, can you talk about what can be done in those scenarios? Absolutely. If there's no tolerance for beaver building a dam and storing water there, it's a pretty straightforward approach. You can build a what's called a pipe and fence device on your upstream part of the culvert, where you basically, to build a fence in a particular format. Uh, it also has to fit, every site is different, so it has to fit the context of the site. But you can protect that culvert with what's usually called a trapezoid or keystone fence and have a pond leveling pipe as well as a protective, protective cage for that pipe upstream of the culvert fence to prevent beavers from building or stuffing that culvert with sticks and mud. They may build on the outside of the fence, but that's okay. You have a pipe going through the fence that hopefully the inlet of that pipe won't be discovered if, you're, if it's applied correctly, installed correctly. That will prevent the beavers from stopping up that area. That also prevents them from storing water in that area. So we only recommend that specific application when there's no tolerance for storing water. If people have a tolerance, like there's a wetland there that a road goes through, and it would be a great place to store water and have beavers and beavers have moved in and that's one of the biggest challenges is like keeping beavers in a mm. spot to store water. Um, then you can actually build a diversion dam or a distraction dam, it's used, both terms are used, to try to just move the beavers focus for building upstream of that culvert and then you do basically the same sort of protection you would also put a fence in to keep them from damming that culvert because a culvert in a road is an almost finished dam for a beaver. There's just a big hole in it. It's right. pretty easy to finish for a beaver yeah. overnight. As many people know, every time they clean it out, boom, next morning it's stuffed again and holding plenty of water. So we just try to move the dam upstream, give them a place to focus. You know, we build it for them and try to make it look like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> which they're much better at it than we are, but they tend to um, make it a lot better once they find it and then protect the culvert. That's my favorite approach is that hopefully a landowner is willing to live with some flooding or I, flooding's not the right word. It's just water storage. 
flooding is only flooding when it's something people don't want. Mm. But in the arid west, most people would like to have more water around more reliably. So. Nice. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could talk about Metro Beaver Project and where our funding comes from. That's probably something maybe some people think about and wonder. Yeah, we are a completely grant or donation funded organization. We get no funding from anywhere else. So uh, we only get a little bit of uh, fundraising funds. Uh, we do a yearly fundraiser event with the entire Metau community through the Community Foundation of North Central Washington. They have a program called Give Metau. They do it in a lot of different communities across Washington state. Um, so there's Give other towns, you know, <laughs> also. But Give Metau is a really important time for us to raise a small amount of discretionary funds. And discretionary meaning we can spend them generally how we want to. Mm. Uh, we gen we often propose a program to support in order to receive uh, interest in donating to us uh, during that fundraising event uh, but it allows us to do a lot of the coexistence work we don't have a lot of funding for that right now that's a newer part of our um, program's strategy and mission so and other places besides those uh, locally raised discretionary funds we are looking at partnering with in all types of different organizations and agencies. From our smallest to largest, I'll say we partner with another Meadow Valley local group called the Meadow Valley Fund. They fund a lot of different things, but at a small level, about $5,000, um, and every few years you can apply for it. We got our first grant with them this year, specifically for coexistence with private landowners, coexistence strategies with Beaver um, on private lands. That's been really exciting. We get funds from Defenders of Wildlife right now uh, for coexistence with beaver and private landowners. That's again, small, a small amount, but it it makes a huge difference when you don't have any other funding for it. We partner, we're just finishing up a couple grants with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners Program, uh, looking at beaver and salmon coexistence in our anadromous streams, anadromous meaning fish that go from freshwater to saltwater and back again for their life cycle. That's primarily salmon species. And we've worked with them to try to focus on keeping beavers in the anadromous zone because most of the beavers we relocate are in the anadromous zone. We're taking them from the anadromous zone and taking them up into the higher country on public lands. So we've been trying to work with landowners a lot with that funding. Again, a, a fairly small amount of funding over a five-year period. So it hasn't been a main, major source of funding. Our biggest one has been with um, Washington State's Recreation and Conservation Office Salmon Recovery Funding Board. And that is a, a larger grant that we received to address something similar as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners Program grant. How do we not only keep beavers in the anadromous zone, but actually help landowners bring them to their area for salmon habitat to increase and improve specifically juvenile rearing and overwintering habitat. That is considered the two real shortcomings um, in salmon survival around here. Spawning, there's some decent spawning habitat throughout the Metau if they can make it back over the dams, you know, all mm. the way back here, it's 600 miles. Right. Uh, so if they make it back, they have decent spawning habitat, but once 
those eggs hatch the next spring, the rearing habitat, the uh, slow water habitat, also known as hydraulic refugia, is in short supply because that basically is side channels and off channel habitat of the main stem methow and its larger tributaries, as every watershed will have. You know, their main stem and then some larger tributaries and lots of little tributaries. It's those larger tributaries and the main main stem that have the potential to rear salmon species if salmon can get back here. But those channels are generally pretty simplified. They're in private lands. Hmm. The majority of human population lives along those stretches of river and they've straightened or protected or reduced the river's access to floodplains or channel back channel environment or side channel environments because it threatens human infrastructure. So that's the area where we've tried to work with willing landowners who are open to having beavers on their property to help create that slow water habitat that juvenile salmon and overwintering salmon need. So that's been our biggest focus for the last three years and we've made some really great headway. It's still challenging because beaver dams in simplified systems in anadromous zones can be thought of as fish passage barriers rather than an improvement of habitat. There's fish and salmon, I mean, beavers and salmon evolved together, but they evolved on a landscape that was so much more complex. As you mm. talked about the Willamette Valley, once being incredibly meandering and access to the entire floodplain and at, all year long there was water on the landscape because beaver dams and woody structure was slowing that water movement down and keeping it resident longer. That's water residency time, that's a big uh, catchphrase. You want to improve water residency time in areas for salmon and for wetland habitat. So that's been those have been our biggest funders. We're just starting into a stream restoration project after wildfire with Washington's Department of Ecology Stream Flow Restoration Program. And that's really exciting. That's a three to four year uh, project where we're going to work in eight sub-basins of two different watersheds, four in the Metal River watershed, four in the Okanagan River watershed, each of these sub-basins being severely impacted by wildfires in 2014 and 2015, especially with debris flows following wildfire and big precipitation events where those channels were scoured and are no longer, even in areas where they formerly accessed their floodplain, they're no longer doing that. They're like log flumes at this point. Um, water shooting down the stream as if it were coming out of a fire hose. So we're getting in there, getting structure back into those streams, whether through beaver dam analogs or beaver mimicry, pounding posts and weaving material into those structures that will span a channel and slow water down and start a grading sediment and eventually overflow its banks and start recreating um, wetland habitat in those streams, at least seasonally. Other places we're doing strictly wood loading where we're moving down burned wood that's still you know it's going to take decades to centuries for it to break down in our dry climate we're just moving that wood into streams in you know sort of uh, pickup stick style to interface with water more than they currently are a lot of these channels are so incised you have wood falling as it would have historically after a fire but it's spanning the channel <laughs> like hmm. at the top of these oh, wow. severely incised channels so you'll have five to 10 feet 
deep of a channel and all these logs just pick up stick style on top and you're like, oh, that was so close to being <laughs> effective naturally. But yeah. because of the incision, eventually they'll break down, you know, but a lot of them then just fall in their tips in there and eventually that would catch more debris and rack up other wood coming downstream. But if we can come in and just use winches and come-alongs to just pull that wood into the stream and interface with the water more. And there's a lot of dead, burned wood out there just sitting up on the floodplain, the abandoned floodplain or inaccessible floodplain. Pull it in. We've already done this in a few streams in the meadow and it, it's working. It's not as fast as building a beaver mimicking structure, a dam mimicking structure. but it's cheaper, even cheaper than putting in BDAs or beaver dam analogs, which is inexpensive compared to big machines and big restoration projects on miles of creek. These approaches are really applicable, low tech, low maintenance, hopefully long-term beaver managed and sustained restoration strategies. So like we can move wood into 800 meters of stream doesn't seem like a whole lot in a day and a half like one of our projects was a day and a half to move a lot of woody debris into these streams that's really affordable that was with three and a half people we had one person for half a day hmm. um, and the three other three full full days so I feel like this is like a conservation core civilian conservation core approach that we could apply on a large scale really inexpensively very effectively to get structure back in streams. The structure then allows beavers to get back into these streams that they can't get back in otherwise for a very long time because of that high stream power in the, in the spring when snow melt in our environment, snow melt, high flow in spring, reduces any opportunity for a beaver to build a dam in these channelized systems. Other places that are channelized from seasonal like rain events they're having the same issue with flooding. You know, they'll, they'll have a, a flooding event where they get lots of rain and not snow dependent, where beavers could also benefit the system by slowing that water down, where they can be tolerated to spread water out, like setting sacrifice areas. You know, we call them sacrifice, but these are actually benefit areas. You know, here's a benefit area where beavers could flood it and slow that water down and protect downstream infrastructure from flooding in wetter environments like Seattle like Portland, you know, those areas that get more rain. Anyways, that's, I can talk for days about this stuff. Um, I appreciate you asking specific questions and I try to answer them. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> I tend to t take myself off in different directions. But. Well, it's good because you're adding the context of the big picture, which is, which is what we need to hear and what, you know, a lot of people see certain pieces. Right, but then they don't fully understand how it works together in a system in a whole. So this has been really good. And um, you know, I want to give people a picture of what you do on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, maybe you could describe like what you're doing for the rest of the day and this week um, and what your job looks like on the ground. That was one of the questions I looked at of yours that I was like, that's going to be a tricky one to answer. Um, this job is definitely not boring in the sense that, oh, day in, day out, we're doing the same old, uh, same old thing. 
it's very exciting and there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of different partners and collaborators that we're constantly trying to schedule and, and interface with. I'm not complaining. I love it. it it's hard It's mm. hard to always keep an, a team in sync. Right. Um, that's definitely an area that I could improve upon. But we also have challenges <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis like this year wildfire. Many previous years wildfire, COVID jumped into the scene. So we, so we definitely have some external things that are mixing things up more than they have in the past. But seasonally, we have grown our project to actually have a few people work through the winter. That was not the case prior to uh, 2019 when I joined the Beaver Project. I really want this kind of work to sustain people as well as the environment. <laughs> you know, if we want a committed, effective group of restoration practitioners, we need to make it a viable living and livelihood for people to stay in. So that's, that's part of my daily routine is grant seeking, mm. trying to maintain funds to keep doing what we're doing and at a reasonable rate that people can live off of that and ideally work year-round with us. The Metau, people are scrappy in the Metau. Rarely can you have one job. You know, people who haven't brought work with them from another place that can actually telecommute working here, people who've grown up here or have moved here for local work, you generally have to patch things together. But I'm really trying. I've done that for 20 years here. I'm trying to make this be a, a job that can support a person and their family year round. That's my goal on the human side. Daily routine in the summer, which has been generally been our active program. <laughs> There's a lot of music happening. Here <laughs> I in hope the background. you guys can't hear this. Uh, There's somebody just pulled up rocking out in their truck behind us. <laughs> it's fine. It's great. I love music too. <laughs> I might just start shaking here. Um, on a seasonal basis, we're generally working with landowners, trying currently to coexist with beavers and if they can't then we are trying to relocate beavers we've had a couple uh, of our team out trying to trap one very crafty right. beaver uh, three times now three different trapping efforts and we still haven't caught what we think is one beaver uh, but we're not sure but the landowner is willing to try to coexist with that beaver but would rather not so we offered to trap um, so far we've been unsuccessful. So trapping can be a part of a day. Um, surveys, doing research surveys out, taking cross-section surveys to measure change in geomorphology in the different streams we're working in. Doing fish salvage, which Josiah got to um, participate in. Can also call that de-fishing an area, but depends on the application. In a wow. restoration, uh, approach like if we are working to restore an area and we're doing construction it's called defishing an area so we don't kill any fish while trying to do the changes to the habitat that will benefit the fish in the long run salvaging is areas like a side channel of the methow that isn't functioning real well it will get high water flows but then the waters recede really quickly leaving pools of water that are stranding fish and eventually those fish will either be eaten by snakes and birds and uh, other critters or they'll just die from poor water quality and then eventually that whole pond drying out. So 
that's a big part of our summer is checking on sites to do that. And I like to call it fish rescuing because that, that <laughs> then I can give myself the term fish hero, which is you know another point on my resume. <laughs> which we're doing this afternoon at a site um, called Twist River Floodplain. It's a great site that has been has had significant restoration done to it, and it's been really successful. But there's still a few problem areas from former irrigation infrastructure that tends to trap fish there in low flows. So we're gonna head out there, Josiah and I, and a, one of our fish biologists with Madhouse Salmon Recovery Foundation, Brian, are gonna head out there this afternoon to do some fish rescue, and also do look at some adaptive management of some of the structures we've built to support salmon rearing and overwintering habitat, but that may just need a little tweaking in order to support spawning fish this late summer and fall as well. So we might do some adaptive management there. Um, that's a typical day. Also administrative stuff of following through on our grant requirements. Uh, there's a lot of red tape, you know, as we like to call it, the bureaucratic stuff that needs to be followed through on when you're getting state or federal funding. It's just, it's a part of the benefit of receiving public funding is we have to show how we're using those funds as well as going through all the required steps for permitting, cultural review, all of that. It's key and important and it takes time. So yeah, my day can seem really exciting some days with uh, handling beavers and handling endangered species and then other days it's all in front of a computer screen and everybody's jonesing to get out, back out in the field again. So. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's very mixed and I wouldn't want to do anything else. Honestly, me either. Uh, I love this job too. <laughs> and maybe um, Josiah will come back to us one of these days. Yeah, fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Okay, I have two more questions. First one, I want to talk about op uh, optimism and hope because I think that you, we've talked about this. Can you talk about, you know, climate change is very intimidating but beavers are in a way very hopeful and optimistic because it's a positive solution is that the way you see it absolutely I'm not sure I can say it any better than that but I have a child a 11 year old who prior to having her I didn't worry that much I mean I, I love animals I am very connected to our earth and all the current biological communities on it but I also took comfort in, we've been through several uh, complete reworkings of the earthly biological community, mm. meaning mass extinctions from various reasons over the last many millions of years, you know, billions of years. So I wasn't too worried about the earth continuing on in some fashion until I had a child. And honestly, wow. having a child made me really think even more deeply about the place I love the animals I love, the habitat, the type of environment I love, because I want there to be some of that for her. And hmm. beavers were really the first thing as climate change and climate fear started to happen in the 90s and built up, you know, through my high school and college experience, um, conservation biology, you know, like one of the saddest right. courses you can take in. college especially when you're on this conservation track oh heartbreaking you think you know, like your local community is bad and then you hear about every other community losing species and just 
the challenge, not only in resource, you know, our human use, but just the intrinsic value of those species. And the only reason they're departing is because of our impact or not understanding our impacts on them as a species. Anyways. Yeah. Beavers are so hopeful, not only because they're just adorable and furry and cute, that makes you feel good, you know, just looking at them, but looking at their complexes, which are messy and sometimes look bad, you know, mm. like all these dead trees around and like half submerged in water and there's sometimes algae growing on the surface and there's a lot of mosquitoes. But if you take the time to sit and listen and count how many different songbirds you're hearing, how mm. many different reptiles you might find if you know how to look for them, how many different amphibians that complex is supporting, how many deer and ungulates come down to drink at that pond every day, how many predators come and feast upon the deer, the songbirds, the beavers themselves, and that cycle of life is just so complete in a beaver mm. complex. And then you think about how amazing it would be if there were just beads of beaver complexes along our stream strings. You know, Ellen Wall sort of coined that term of river beads, of just these very lush, resilient, diverse beads on our streams and it doesn't have to be everywhere for it to have a huge impact to change the resilience and the sustainability of our future as a whole not even just as a species as a whole so i i just find beavers incredibly hopeful and i question the revolution part because i am so focused on beavers that Sometimes I get bummed out when other people are like, beavers, they're not even native here, are they? And I'm oh like, dear. oh, like how can, it, how can I feel like we're in a revolution when I meet people who I, I think are just nice people, kind people, regular people, and they don't have any clue about why beavers might be important. Hmm. So that's why where I, I'm not as optimistic as some might be around the beaver revolution, but I have no idea, I, I have no doubt that if I can sit down with someone for 10 minutes and talk to them about beavers, I'll have a new beaver believer. Right. It's just getting you, Josiah, and me, and Joe, and Willie, and Sarah Konigsberg, and, and all the incredible people in the beaver restoration community to talk to people and have these conversations and just say, you wanna hear something amazing? This native species, who couldn't adapt to like any environment from the Arctic to the desert? They could be here right now if we help them. Yeah. And then they'll take care of themselves. They're self-sustaining, you know? So it just makes so much sense. It's so hopeful. I'm having chills right now. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing. Okay, I'm going to talk to the people listening here. You guys. Yes, I'm talking to you. So if this sounds exciting to you, you can do a few things to help us out here and raise awareness about beavers. Number one is really easy. I mean, you're listening to this conversation for here, so for free. So here's what I want you to do to help pay us back. <laughs> I want you to have some conversations with people about beavers. That would be super fantastic. Um, if you're interested in working with beavers, uh, there are ways that you can do that. Um, if you're here in the Meto Valley, we take volunteers like anytime we can get them. And um, we do tours when we can. Um, so let us know if you're interested um, and you know you don't have to have a degree in something
something to, to help out in some really big ways. Um, a lot of this stuff can be learned. We can teach you how to do it. Um, if you bring uh, a skills in other areas, there are so many different skills that can be used to promote beavers. Um, graphic design, you know, I'm doing this podcast. Uh, really, it's everything. Uh, everything outdoors, agriculture, water. GIS skills? Yeah, GIS drones. Um, if you are a lawyer or know somebody that is, there's a lot of legal stuff with beavers as well. Or you just like to hike along streams. We need those people too. In fact, they're in short supply of people who are willing to go uh, banging through riparian brush like roses and <laughs> stinging nettle. Yeah. Sound fun? Good, call me. <laughs> if you're not in this area, you may be in an area that has or could have beavers. Um, we would encourage you guys to reach out and find the local groups that are in your area and see what they're doing with beavers. We can help you find them too. Tell us where you are and we'll help you get in touch with those people. We know a lot of people nationally and in Canada and in the UK and Scotland. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that's the same place. <laughs> it's exciting. Um, so see what you can do, check it out. Um, my last question for Alexa is, what is the future of Metal Beaver Project? Where do you see it in five to 10 years? My hope, and I think it is very feasible, is that we continue to expand the Beaver Project's kind of expanding mission of coexistence first, restoration second, and relocation third across Eastern Washington. Um, and then on into Idaho and you know any place, part, and this could be in partnership, and our expansion meaning we support one another, Beaver Projects in partnership, whether that's through regional grants, as the USDA um, often encourages, not just like Eastern Washington, but Washington, Idaho, Oregon, to team up mm. and say, let's apply this on a scale large enough and employ a lot of people to make this an effective restoration strategy and a resilience building strategy. That is my hope. We're working with the Beaver Coalition in Oregon. Uh, we have some contacts with folks in Montana that are really also serious about doing this as well. And in the next round of uh, conservation innovation grants through the USDA, our plan is to apply on a multi-state level to apply structure installation strategies. So beaver mimicry, wood loading, integrated streams that can then benefit beaver establishment. And that either could be natural beaver establishment, they find it as they did in the John Day, there were already beavers in there. That's a whole nother project around Utah State University um, folks who did groundbreaking work in Bridge Creek on the John Day in Oregon. Um, but to then apply that as well as relocation of beavers, conflict beavers, we only relocate conflict beavers um, across those states on a larger scale, working with agriculture, working with um, departments of transportation, working with anybody who typically has problems with beavers as well. You know, just trying to say like, we are here, we're gonna apply restoration, we're gonna apply coexistence, an all in one package of like beaver management for ecological benefit. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to see this happen as well. Um, 
Alexa, we want to thank you for your commitment to beaver restoration with the Metro Beaver Project and the energy that you bring to this. It is, it is exciting. Thanks, Josiah, and thanks for making this happen. I mean, this wouldn't be happening if you were not here with us, and thanks to Meadow Valley Fly Fishers tremendously. for supporting yeah. and sponsoring an intern with us this summer. And Josiah has exceeded all expectations for that. Well, thank, thank you. you. Um, as we wrap up here, we want to thank you guys for tuning in. Um, once again, this is the Metal Beaver Project podcast. I'll be damned. And I'll be damned. <laughs> if you guys want to support this podcast, um, meaning it could be financially, it could be uh, writing a review for us to promote this in that way so more people see it. Please do that. Um, please share this podcast with with your network, social media, people you know might be interested. Um, my name is Josiah Shaver. I'm your host. If you have feedback for me on how I can do this better, people I might want to interview, things I could change, please, we want to know that as well. We have a hotline phone number that's also our number for, for Beaver... Um, beaver help uh, if you have a uh, if you're in the metal valley and have a beaver issue this is the number to call 509-289-2770 you can find that on our website as well which is metalbeaverproject.org you can also send us an email at metalbeaverproject at metalsalmon.org uh, you can probably find that as as well once again leave us a review and tune in next time we're going to be interviewing, doing shorter interviews with everyone on the Metal Beaver Project. There's only a handful of us and getting kind of that inside scoop from them on what it looks like to work for the Metal Beaver Project. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time.